welcome to this week's sermon from C3 Church Narara. We hope you enjoy this message. For more information or to contact us, visit c3church.narara.net. Thank you, sir. Thank you, Pastor. You may be seated, church. Thank, as we're sitting down, we thank our musicians huh, uh, for just a, a brilliant time in worship. I want to thank Pastors uh, Chris and Ruth Brown. Thank you so much for having an uncomplicated, healthy church. And everybody said, thank you. And it's so nice to see Eleanor and, and, and Bethany again. You must be so proud of your girls. Like, seriously, you must be so proud of how beautiful they are. They're in the house of God. Just the love of God permeates out of those girls. Girls, I want you to know that uh, you are a, a gift to this church and a gift to your parents. It's so nice to see you both again. And of course, Jared Butler to my right, to your left. Uh, Brendan, right? What a voice. I could listen to you sing all day, my man. Let's give him a hand. You want to stay up here with me? Or no? Oh, sorry. No, I'm just... um, it's great for Michelle and I to be here. We just, any chance to do a road trip? Uh, we're getting the car. It's so nice to be away from the kids. Yeah, not that far, that's right. But no, when you come from Stanwell Tops at six in the morning, it's a road trip. Um, but it's just good to be away from the kids. Um, <laughs> we have three teenagers, 18, 16 and 14, and, and they're terrific. They're terrific, terrific kids, but they're expensive. They don't go to Christian schools. We don't drive fancy cars. We don't do holidays to Bali every six months. But Lachlan does love his Converse shoes. And Madison loves to go and see bands when they come to town. And Michaela, I, I don't know, Shell, what does she like apart from clothes and acai smoothies and all that sort of stuff? You know, we make sure that we really love and look after those kids, but teenagers are expensive. And I think it was John Maxwell who said that raising uh, toddlers is asleep under a coconut tree compared to raising teenagers. Fortunately, our kids haven't been, you know, high maintenance or emotionally expensive, but, you know, they've definitely got some thoughts on things and prefer to do the thinking themselves. Um, we absolutely love them. Um, thank you for having me come back and speak. As soon as I walked into this place, not just because of the renovations, not just because of the great worship, but just because you know when you walk into a healthy church. I've seen a few. I've been privileged enough to travel with, with Pastor Phil for 20 years, and, um, and sometimes you don't know whether you're awake or asleep. You land in some part of the world and you think, where am I? Am I in Singapore? No, you're in Russia. Oh, okay, they're in Singapore. You know, because you just don't know whether you're awake or asleep. But I can promise you this, it doesn't matter where you go. There are disembodied spirits that will dominate atmospheres. And you've got to learn to read uh, uh, the spiritual climate of the place you go. And as I walked in this morning, I, I felt like it was a second conversion for me. I know that sounds like strong language, but it's so nice to walk into a place which is uncomplicated, uncluttered, healthy, Beautiful, where there is an ease to discover the presence of God. Don't ever take for granted what God has given you in this place. This is not a cliche statement. I'm telling you the truth. I'm not preaching right now. I'm telling you the truth. Um, that you walk into a place and you know there's a spirit of health. Don't treat it as common, that which is sacred. Just love to be able to say that if that's all right. Pastor Chris asked me to talk on worship this morning. Look at that, I've become a walking cliche. Uh, 20 years I was involved in creative ministry and I was fortunate enough to play on 30 albums and write over 100 songs and travel and all that sort of stuff until I got to the age of 38, 39, almost 40, where uh, you know the very thing that I actually vowed would never happen, happened. Don't ever make an inner vow. Don't ever make those private promises to yourself. For I did hit a wall 
And I did go through a, a let's call it a faith crisis, a midlife crisis, an identity crisis. Um, all the things that I used to love and champion, I no longer loved anymore. And it didn't, those feelings didn't last for a day, a week or a month, but they lasted for a few years. Did something I never vowed, again, another thing I vowed never to do. And I actually went and saw a counselor and I spent some time. And I just want you to know this this morning before I get into this message is that, um, uh, that all of us wouldn't hurt at some point in our lives, to do a level of supervision or counselling with somebody, but to understand that it's a self-awareness tool. Transformation comes by the Holy Spirit. But to do self-awareness with a trusted companion, God will use that. God will help us and to use it. And I've discovered that whatever crisis you go through, remember a crisis is different from a trial, it exists for one reason and one reason only, and that's to transform us. It's the only reason we hit the wall. It's the only reason we, we go from the active outer life through a wall or through a crisis to the inner life where we are transformed into perfect love. And the reason we go through it is because the Holy Spirit needs to burn away some of those imperfections. It's a purification process. He likes to burn away those false constructs that we build up without knowing it. He crashes us on the freeway of busyness, pulls us over to the side of the road and says, look, I'm sorry to say, but there's a whole lot of things that you've been believing, championing, um, supporting that uh, are dysfunctional and toxic, but you've come to think that they're normal because it's been so long. Now, I'm not talking about anything sinister, but I was in ministry for well over 20 years with Michelle. And uh, it's interesting, there comes a point where God says, we, we need to see your authentic self emerge. We're not going to let some of these false constructs into your future. We're going to burn them away. And this is going to hurt a little, but... This is the kind of interior freedom that can come no other way. Great little scripture in Romans chapter 12. You can read a passage of scripture, by the way, in your teens and 20s and then read it in your 30s and 40s. It means something completely different. Uh, in Romans chapter 12, have we got that, guys, at the back? Look at, look at you. You're all over it, like white on rice. Look at you. <laughs> Romans chapter 12. Look, I don't even have to turn around and look at my notes. High-tech building. Here we go. So here's what I want you to do. God helping you take your everyday ordinary life. Some lives are more ordinary than others. You know? uh, you're sleeping, eating, going to work, and walking around life. Place it before God as an offering. Everybody say offering. offering. Embracing what God does for you is the best thing you can do for him. Don't become so well-adjusted to your culture that you fit into it without even thinking. Without even thinking. Instead, fix your attention on God. You'll be changed from the inside out readily recognize what he wants from you and quickly respond to it. Unlike the culture around you, always dragging you down to its level of immaturity. God brings the best out of you, develops well-formed maturity in you. That's a key word for all of us who are following Christ, maturity. Okay. I encourage all of us to read this in the NIV before we actually go over it in the message some other time. You can certainly do that in your own time. When I first read it, you know, Paul in the NIV, it, it, it reads uh, that... Uh, through the renewing of your mind, right? Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. Whenever you see the will of God in the Bible, it pretty much means the word of God. To do the will of God is to obey the word of God. You don't have to sit around on the couch scratching your head waiting to find out what the will of God is. You just have to open the Bible and you're in direct communion with Jesus himself. And that's why it's so important. You know why we keep coming to church every week? You might think like you're Bill Murray in Groundhog Day. Tell you why we keep, I tell you why we keep, I love that movie. I'm the only person in my family who loves that movie. Um, the reason we have to keep coming to church and hearing the word of God is because it's, it's good for us. You know, Psalm 119 says, blessed are they that love thy word, for nothing shall offend them. That's why we keep coming to church. 
That's why we keep reading the word, because it, it keeps us in a place where we live above the place of offense. Now, our growth is in the offense, but when you can live above that place because there's so much of the word of God in you, that's when you really start to enjoy an interior freedom that cannot be manufactured, that is real, because it's coming from the word of God. It's a wonderful thing. Anyway, I used to think that scripture that Paul was talking about had to do with the renewing of the mind and the will of God. But since journeying as a believer in church life, I've come to understand that there's a lot uh, more going on in this text than we realize. And he's really talking about two main things, two big rocks here. And these are the two rocks I want to just unpackage a little bit here this morning. Do I have a clock that will show me how long I've got? Or is there a bell or one of those fog horns that you get at the $2 shop? Oh, heavy. Yes, thin ice. <laughs> um, okay, so we'll just, someone sort of whistle or stand up and go, that'll do, when, when, when you start to, start to fall asleep. Paul's talking about two main things, the two big rocks here. Number one, making lifestyle choices that support a life of worship. If I was going to talk about prayer, I'd talk about relationship. If I was going to talk about prophecy, I'd talk about a potential. If I'm talking about worship, here's what I'm talking about, a lifestyle. That's what worship is. Away from the guitars, the pianos, the drums, the Bethel CDs, the podcasts, the lifting your hand. No, no, no. Lifestyle choices. Who I am when no one's looking. And not as a religious exercise, I might add. A decision to actually detach yourself from some unhealthy things. The other thing Paul's talking about, the second big rock, is resisting a worldly culture that competes for that worship. You know, you can be so heavenly bound, you can do no earthly good. You become unrelatable. That's not the kind of resistance I'm talking about. That's not the kind of path I'm talking about where you, you go, no, I can't possibly. No, 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 you can. But you're resisting that worldly culture that competes for that worship. That's what he's talking about. Resisting a worldly culture that competes for our worship. What is the culture around us? Well, without becoming a sort of like apocalyptic or an end times type preacher, I do want to say that we are living in a modern day Babylon. And the story of Daniel is the story of all of us. 600 BC, him and his friends taken off in captivity when Israel sacked by the Babylonians, finds himself in a place where, wait for it, everything that was banned in Israel is now being celebrated. Wow. That's not an easy day. That's a tough day. But Babylon for Daniel represented the oppressor against which the righteous must struggle. And Babylon would have been the most incredible place, architecture, wealth, opportunity, you name it, right? Suddenly he's in the middle of it, but he had to differentiate himself. And you'll find that any figure in the Bible that had something to say and that changed the trends understood the concept of differentiation. They were able to stay connected, right, to whatever they were connected to without allowing their behaviours or responses to be determined by it. You start talking about integration, you've got to talk about differentiation. They were, he was integrated into the society, became an advisor, became somebody who was known for, for uh, uh, decoding apocalyptic dreams and visions of the king. But he was differentiated. He was not prepared to let some things go. He resisted that worldly culture. Anytime he was summoned by the king, he was found in a place of prayer. He had to exist in a foreign culture. We, I'm sorry, we are existing in a foreign culture. Yeah. Let's not get a little crazy. Let's be cool. Just be cool. But do not let this culture have the power over you or cause you to uh, 
succumb to its, uh, its uh, pressures, downward pressures. You make a decision about how you're going to behave and respond and you differentiate yourself. It's a picture of the modern-day fight for those of us who follow Jesus because the world pressures us to own certain things, to do certain stuff, and to live a certain way and behave a certain way in order to be accepted. When I made an album called Sons Can Rest, which um, my fanboy, where's Chris Dewar? Is he here? Long hair, looking cuter than ever. You're hiding up the back, you've had enough, right? Okay. What a wonderful man. Told me how much he loved that record when he was overseas with his beautiful family. And when I made that album, I got a revelation that we're not under Pharaoh anymore. And uh, we're free sons and daughters, and free sons and daughters can rest. We don't have to strive in order to be accepted or received. That's how we're raised. You know, win the approval of your mentor, your parents, your teachers. No, 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 no. it's all gone. It's all vaporized. That, that, that doesn't exist anymore. The moment you receive Jesus, you start to live and work and breathe and create and love from a place of rest, from a great interior peace. Do you know what the fight for all of us is, as far as worship is, goes, is to stay a rested son or daughter. That's the fight. It's not to get ahead or strive. No, no, no. You work less, he works more. That's how it works. We need to return to that theology all the time. Okay. This living worship resists the temptation to conform to some worldly patterns. Okay. So here's a few of my favorites. I made a list a couple of years ago about 20 worldly patterns, what I would call classic worldly patterns. I condensed it to my three favorites. What do worldly patterns look like? Here's my first. You ready for it? A classic worldly pattern would have us overworked, violating our personal boundaries and capacity, crashing, then finally taking holidays that aren't all they're cracked up to be. Does that ring a few bells? Let's go to uh, the Maldives for a couple of weeks, you know, and you get diarrhea and you lose your luggage and <laughs> you get food poisoning, you come home and you think, that was a great holiday. <laughs> but see, our society, worldly pattern is work, 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 and work, 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 work. take a vacation. <clears throat> Not what we're wired to do. It's an incorrect pattern for those of us who follow Jesus. It's a foreign culture. Here's another one. A classic worldly pattern would have us living lives that we were never meant to live by comparing ourselves and our lives to the lives of others, which goes against God's plan for us. I did a very naughty thing the other day, and I felt so convicted I took it off Instagram. Do you know what I did? In my little bio, I put loving reposting posts that have been posted about me, dot, dot, dot. Yeah, sorry, you probably don't get it. Um, you know, sort of jabbing the needle in a little bit. I think maybe Instagram and Facebook went a touch too far when people started to repost things that others had posted about themselves. Do you know, I saw a post recently where somebody had received flowers on their doorstep from a particular person. They snapped a shot of it and they decided to post it to 3,000 people. If Vera and Clifford leave some chocolates and flowers on your doorstep, text them direct or maybe even give them a call. Vera and Clifford, I want you to know, thank you for the lint chocolates and the flowers. I love you. Hope the dog's feeling better. Say hi to the kids for us. We appreciate everything you do. Boom. There it is. No more, no less. 3,000 people don't care that you got flowers from Vera and Clifford, you know. But this is me getting on a soapbox. I'm going to stop right now because before you know it's going to be like the Blues Brothers, no chicken, why are you going to throw fruit? Here's the third worldly pattern. Classic worldly pattern would have us feeling the need to own things that we don't want to own or need to own in order to feel better about ourselves. 
I think I said this last time when I was preaching, affluenza is a, is a term that was coined by an author named Clive Hamilton who basically said that it's spending money you don't have on things you don't need to impress people you don't like. Worldly pattern. Making lifestyle choices that support a life of worship is what we're called to do. Now, I could go on about this all day, but we haven't got the time because, you know, it might be nice to sing a couple of songs and play a few solos. Some people go for a surf to unwind. I bend tiny little bits of metal. That's how weird I am. Okay, what is a lifestyle of living worship? Okay, well, here it comes. Number one, it's a life that honours the rhythms of the Christian calendar rather than the culture around us. First 300 years after Jesus ascended into heaven, before Constantine legalised Christianity, right? there were three groups of people. There was the group of people that tried to live with a foot in the empire and a foot in the kingdom, God's kingdom. But the pull back into that worldly culture was too strong. Second kind of people, like believer or follower of Christ, was the one that actually thought it more pious to be martyred for Christ, sawn in two, bag of snakes, fed to the lion's den, killed for Jesus. But then there was a third group that thought that was an easy cop-out. And they retreated to the deserts of Syria and Lebanon and what would be modern-day Turkey. And you know what? They actually were known as the Desert Fathers, and that was the birthing of Christian monasticism. And what they did is they left everything behind, right? Not as a religious exercise, but because they wanted to cut out all of the distractions and make more room for God. And they were known as the Desert Fathers, Christian monasticism, but this was a reflective and contemplative lifestyle. And they honoured the rhythms of the Christian calendar. What would be one of the first rhythms of the Christian calendar? Daily prayer. And you might say, oh, prayer, it's like you know, eating vegetables. It's, it's hard work. Well, if you're praying in tongues as fast as you can, for as loud as you can for an hour in a corporate environment, that definitely has a time and a place. But the prayer I'm talking about is the one where you get up and you just enjoy being with God and not doing for God. It's the place where your being with God is going to support your doing for God. You don't have to say anything at all. You can just go for a beautiful walk with Jesus, say nothing, slow down your interior world for him and start to live your life out of an overflowing cup that is Jesus. Let's demystify prayer for a second. It is not a grind, it's a joy. When we think the term prayer, it's like, oh, fasting and prayer. No, 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 no. no. Let's think intimacy, vulnerability, coming to God as you are. He might speak to you and ask you to do something that maybe you didn't feel ready for. Don't be afraid of that. Let, let that come as a result of your intimacy, but to live your life out of an overflowing cup. The other is the daily office where you stop throughout the course of the day for quiet intervals to consider and ask yourself the question, am I living in perfect peace right now or is it manufactured? Have I settled for false peacemaking? Have I picked up something and am I carrying something now that God never asked me to bear the burden of? Very important to do that throughout the course of the day. Sabbath delight. Let me ask a question here in the, in the service this morning. Hands up if you struggle and feel guilty to put yourself at the top of the list. Hands up. Two people. Okay, well, I'm going to put up okay, a couple more. All right. Oh, another one. I can see that hand. All right. You know, uh, it's, this is a common problem amongst us, whether we're saved or unsaved. Right? We struggle to put ourselves at the top of the list because we've lived our lives with the self-denial message. Yeah. Let's not be selfish, let's die to selfishness and yada, yada, and imitate Christ's humility. We have to take up our cross. Can I just say this, that if we've been created in the image of God, 
and on the seventh day he rested from all his activity, if we are not honouring Sabbath to light, that's the one 24-hour period every seven days where we stop and do those things that light us up without feeling guilty, without feeling ashamed, and we acknowledge the things that bring us consolation, that, that bring us joy, that bring us life, then our worship is fragmented. Now, that's a strange theology, what I'm saying, because self-honour and self-care, right, is a part of our worship, made in the image of God. The only gift on offer to the world is you. If it's in bad shape, what are you giving? You're giving something you're not in possession of. We have to honour that rhythm in our lives by stopping and believing that God can run the earth without us for 24 hours. We're not you know, contributing to the gross domestic product. doesn't matter. He's not going to fall out of the sky. If we don't stop for Sabbath delight, then it's borderline rebellion. To stop is not just to sit still. To stop to do those things that light us up, that bring us joy so that the Father can delight in us. And of course, every seven to ten years to take an extended break, which is so that we can reinvent. It's so that we can reinvent and hear from God again. We're not called to live off somebody else's spirituality. But this lifestyle that I'm talking about is a life that honours God's ways. Intimacy with Jesus, that's a big one. I used to ask myself the question, why are prayer meetings so poorly attended? At Oxford Falls, at the time I was the music director, it was a church that wasn't an insignificant in size for the Northern Beaches, and every time I'd play at a prayer meeting, it was pretty poorly attended. It was like a mad woman smiled. Every second tooth was missing. And I'd be up there playing guitar thinking, maybe the traffic on the bridge is bad. Maybe there's gridlock in Mossman. Maybe people are sick, maybe people are busy, maybe parent-teacher. Is it school holidays? No, 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 no. Till the lights went on after 25 years and I thought, why is this prayer so heavily contended? Well, it's probably because we have intimacy issues. Prayer requires us to make the intimate and vulnerable connection with Jesus. Bono said in an interview years ago, you cannot come to God with a mask on. It doesn't work. I wrote some statements here that I think are really good statements that maybe will ring a few bells. What's stopping us? Well, here's some ones that I think in my head they ruminate. Jesus, heal me, but don't get too close. That may be in our subconscious. That's when we want the healing, but maybe not the vulnerability that it requires. Jesus, bless me, but let's do it my way. It's when we want the blessing of God as long as we get to do the thinking ourselves. Jesus, save me, but don't speak to me about personal things that require me to change. It's when we want our lives to change, but as long as they stay the same. Now, that sounds a bit psychotic to me. A true and solid self before God is the one who makes the vulnerable connection with God. Everybody say vulnerable. vulnerable. Daniel was favoured in an environment that was hostile to God. He was constantly making that vulnerable connection. His doing for God came out of his being with God. Why did Jesus wake up early and find a solitary place to pray to the Father? Some people say, do I have to get up early? Do I have to get? No, you don't have to get up early. But I'll tell you the advantage of getting up early is this is that you are given the strength and the discernment to navigate the day. You win the first hour of the day with Jesus, you win the day. It's as simple as that. Living worship is, lived, is a life that's lived out of the overflow of a love for God because we discover an ease about the things that were once a struggle in a fight. Number two is staying free from the love of idols. Living worship is staying free from the love of idols. This is, this is a, a sneaky one. It's, a, it's, it's it quite insidious in the kingdom the way it sneaks in. An idol is a substitute for God or the things that have become more important to us than God. Did you know that the church and our, our church life can become an idol? 
which you wouldn't think so, right? Because you think, hang on, you know, I will build my church, therefore I'm partnering with Christ. But even that itself, you know, suddenly we can become like Mr. G in Summer Heights High with this idea of possession in theatre, you know? It's my show, Margaret, you know, but that can happen, right? It can become a huge idol in our lives. Idolatry is when we go after things with a greater passion and intensity than we do for God himself. Living worship has its competitors, which attempts to make us act independently from God or to be in competition with God. And the wilderness for Jesus was a competition for worship and identity. We, we, we hear about you know, this baptism of Jesus at River Jordan, you know, and uh, you can imagine how euphoric that would have been, like an out-of-body experience. The dove lands on his shoulder, the crowds are amazed. John the Baptist is completely bewildered. He submits to Jesus. He's a bit confused. Jesus allows him to be baptized and so on and so forth. And then the audible voice endorses him publicly. What happens? The Holy Spirit, in his flirtatious ways, leads him straight out into a dry spell. I just don't get that. I'm like, after a great worship service, you lie at night, it's amazing. And then the next day, all those feelings evaporate. Why? Well, I think maybe is it because God doesn't want us to worship the God feels, mistaking them for God himself? Probably. But the wilderness, wilderness experience for Jesus, a lot more going on in this journey. And again, the story of Jesus in the wilderness is the story of all of us. What was it for Jesus? It was the great temptation to a false self. The great temptation towards a false self that was not a life of worship. The first thing was performance. Turn these stones into bread. That's, the enemy loves to do that. You are what you do. Perform. You're the performing monkey. Off you go. Entertain me. Second one was popularity. Throw yourself off the highest point. I am what others think. It's not true. Number three, possessions. Bow down, worship me. I'm going to give you all of these things. I am what I have. Three temptations towards a false self. Idolatry always starts with this temptation, right? Towards a false self. And it usually comes because we grow dissatisfied with the level of spirituality that God gives us. Don't become overindulgent with the level of spirituality he gives you. Don't grow dissatisfied. Simplifying your life causes us to reevaluate our lives and our priorities. Often we're, we're unaware of how attached we are to things until God removes them altogether. And the last one is becoming more like God over time. So, Sister Spirit Fingers, do you want to jump up? Is she here? Sarah? Why don't we hit the key of F and then we'll get the old vinyl out and sing a couple of songs from the 90s. No, 2000s. No, yes, yes, yes. Last one is becoming more like God over time. Living worship has to do with us becoming more like God over time. You know, uh, the Holy Spirit is, is purging and purifying in every stage of our faith. And, um, you know, we, we, we actually go through the first door, the first stage as believers, which is a, a, an awareness of God. We become aware of God. It's like, Wow. He's revealed himself to me, and we live out of that revelation. You don't live out of knowledge, you live out of revelation. But then you do something with that revelation and that awareness, you learn about him. Then you go into the third stage, which is you become a participant in the kingdom. You start to do for God, and the work of the Holy Spirit is he empowers you to do for him. But then you go through a moment where you get blindsided. Now, it's not a trial. A trial is like a you know, root canal therapy or... Maybe you're behind in your utilities because you lost your job. Those things are trials. To go through a crisis moment would be David fleeing the hands of a jealous king in the desert for 13 years or Job losing everything in a day. Those are those moments that actually break us 
so that God can do a great deep interior work in our lives so that we can become more like God over time. Can I just say that he spends a lifetime fashioning and forming us into the image of his son. His goal is not our happiness. His goal is to form us into the image of Jesus. Freedom. Freedom is only freedom when it's freedom. God has made us all unique and different, but his desire for us is all the same. We all have a different thumbprint, but the same outcome, and that is that we cooperate. Everybody say cooperate. Cooperate with the process of being changed into that image over our time, the timeline of our lives until it's perfected. We end up thanking God for them because we are made on the road to brokenness. We're made on the road to brokenness. We hope you've enjoyed this week's sermon. For more information or to contact us, visit c3church.narara.net.